Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On today's episode, my guest is Rebecca Babcock. Rebecca is a 43-year-old badass, chronic illness warrior. She has ulcerative colitis and uses the hashtag no colon still rolling, which I love. And she is a highly effective corporate leader. After 20 plus years of celebrated successes, she has stepped away from the corporate ladder to help others live their best life now, regardless of how lifey life gets. Rebecca infuses her life experiences, of which there are plenty, with her ability to relate, communicate, and confidently lead her fellow seekers, those of us who are curious, passionate, and driven to live our best, most fulfilled, and truest lives. She is committed to helping her clients discover their unique design for living, the exact roadmap for building a fulfilling career, and living their most honest, self-confident, and fulfilling life now. She has advanced degrees in human and organizational development and group dynamics from Vanderbilt University and over 20 years experience as a sales and marketing executive at global blue chip companies and tech startups, including Vogue, GQ, Lucky, Glamour, eBay, Taboola, and Shutterstock. She has mentored and led teams to peak success and consistently exceeded expectations. And each episode, I will also be raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. This episode, the charity is the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. As I mentioned in Rebecca's bio, she has dealt with ulcerative colitis her most of her entire life. And so this is a very near and dear organization for her. And as you can tell from Rebecca's bio, she has experienced a lot of success in the quote-unquote traditional American way. She ascended the corporate ladder for 20 years. She worked with lots of name brand household companies, and she was really good at it. She loved what she did, but there was something missing, which is very common when people come to coaches. There's the element of there's something missing. I love what I'm doing. I'm getting rewarded handsomely for what I do. And yet it's not really truly fulfilling. And so Rebecca unpacks a lot of how she ended up at, at the end of 20 years. What Where was she in her life and what informed why she was there? She grew up in a very affluent neighborhood and, and household, but also one that was really demanding of her. And so she really put her head down and grinded for a long portion of her career before she finally woke up and started asking her the big questions of who am I really and what do I want? So in the course of her own self-discovery, she has created roadmaps for her clients to follow. One of the ones that we dive into is the four pillars that she uses with all of her clients, awareness, action, confidence, and choice. And so we really dive deep into that. And we also go into all the different daily practices that she has and daily practices that she invites her clients into so they can start living more intentionally. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath. 
and enjoy what Rebecca has for us today. All right, Rebecca, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, Mike. I'm grateful to have you on. And I am I'm fascinated by multiple facets of your story and would love to get into all the different parts of it. But before we go there, I usually start my interview by asking what it was like at your dinner table growing up. And I'm really interested in knowing about your childhood and your come from and what was expected of you from your parents. So what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Oh my God, jump it in right away. Okay, so I'll paint the picture. We'll see, we'll see if this resonates for anybody. So I grew up in a suburb of New York City where lots of very accomplished executives lived with their families. And um, I grew up eating at the dining room table with my whole family. We waited for my father to come back from New York City every day from work. And we sat as a family and ate a proper appetizer, which would be a salad, and then a full dinner with a protein and a vegetable. And we would, we would use proper china and sit in the dining room. And it is pretty emblematic of my childhood in the sense that it all looked very lovely and fancy and shiny and wasn't necessarily exactly what was going on, but it looked nice. <laughs> and I would love to hear from here what, what exactly was going on. So there was, it looked like great window dressing, fancy things. What, what was going on underneath the surface? So with all due respect to my lovely and amazing parents who probably won't ever listen to this, but you know, just in case everyone was doing the best they could with what they had. And my father was a very high performing executive who had a more traditional concept of family and he worked all day and came home and ate dinner and we didn't really see him. And my mother was, my mother actually worked. She was an interior designer, but the outsides were very put together, everything looked nice. Children are to be seen and not heard. Mm. My sister and I attended an all girls preparatory school in the lovely town of Greenwich, Connecticut. And behind the scenes, it was just very lonely, especially for me. I was the youngest and didn't have a very close relationship with my father. And my mom was, was working and the wife of an executive. And so my sister and I were mostly raised by nannies mm -hmm. and, uh, the nannies were never at dinner. Actually, the more I think about that, that's interesting. There was a lot of pressure to perform, to be good, to be uh, worthy of all that had been given to me in terms of a beautiful home, all these amazing resources, a great education. I felt a tremendous amount of pressure to live up to what had been given to, to those much as given, much as expected. I very much felt that. And my parents didn't have a very happy marriage. So while it looked pretty, I can't imagine what we talked about at the dining room table. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was very much appearances first. And behind that was not necessarily all that much fun. Certainly not, uh, yay, family, we're at the dining room table. We can't wait to the end of the day where we all get to catch up and share what's gone on in the day. It was more performative. Mm -hmm. So given all of those expectations, it seems like from a pretty young age, you put pressure on yourself and it sounds like maybe your parents put pressure on you as well to perform at a high level and then presumably to get a, a flashy career, right? 
So what, what did you want to be? Did you have memories as a child of what you wanted to be when you grew up? And did that align with the direction that you went? Or was it just like head down, let's plow forward. I'm going to get a high paying, high performing type of job. The latter. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit less to, to really play it out from, from that dining room table. Then I went on to Vanderbilt University mm-hmm. where I graduated magna cum laude. So it was never, it wasn't just like, it was do well enough in high school to get into a good college. And then I got into this college that I was sort of shocked I got into. And I felt so much pressure that I was like, I can't believe I'm here that I studied, studied, studied. Granted, I had a lot of fun. I was the rush chair of my sorority. I had a great time at Vanderbilt. It was a great experience. But I, I mean, I got high honors my first semester of my freshman year right? Where everyone else is supposed to gain their freshman 15 and like mess around. I was like, I can't believe I'm here. I've got to work even harder. Like I didn't watch TV in my dorm room. I would go to the library and study. Um, and that was just kind of how I was again. I still also had a lot of fun, but so then it was, okay. I graduated from my preparatory school. I got into a good college. I got into a good college. I graduated magna cum laude from that college. Now I'm going to move back to New York city, which is basically where I grew up and get a good job. Mm-hmm. It never dawned on me. Like, what do you like to do? Or maybe take a year off and travel. It was like, no, 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 no. I've got to, you know, keep going. And the irony for me was, I don't know if it's irony. It's not a very good way to put it, but I graduated in May, 2001, moved to New York, actually moved back to where I grew up in Connecticut because New York's expensive and I had no job. And uh, 9-11 happened very soon, obviously, after I graduated. And so my experience in getting a job was pretty interesting. Also, just to give perspective to those that maybe aren't my age, monster.com didn't exist yet. Like applying for LinkedIn didn't exist. Like, you know, this was the days of dial-up. So it was really relationships and it was really boots on the ground looking for a job. And then 9-11 happened and obviously hiring kind of stopped. So it was very much a humbling and hard experience. I um, applied for and interviewed at, not applied for, interviewed 47 times before I got my first job. Wow. Oh my Mm -hmm. God. (laughs) Yeah. That is insane. So what was, I didn't think we would go here, but what what was that? I'm imagining myself by interview nine, I would be totally dejected. Like, what is there really something out there for me? What, what kept you going? Well, truthfully, I, so my degree from Vanderbilt is in human and organizational development with mm-hmm. a focus on leadership and entrepreneurship. And that was, has ended up being like the greatest thing ever and totally brought me to where I am professionally now. But at the time it was like, cool, what are you going to do with that? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. And especially after 9-11, it was like, we have an opening for a journalist. We have an opening for a consultant. We have an opening for a marketing professional. What are you? I was like, yeah, I don't really know. So part of the process of going on so many interviews was because I was like, is it PR? Is it sales? Is it my father and my grandfather both worked in retail? And so I had a lot of interviews with department stores. And I quickly realized I am terrible at numbers and being a buyer was really not going to be the thing that was going to work out well for me. And that it wasn't just about buying fun clothes. It was about numbers and graphs and sales and stats. So I, I think that, I mean, I certainly thought, took it personally, but I also felt more like I just haven't found my thing. I don't know what it is yet. So maybe it's this. And I would 
and I would try to, all of this is to say this was before the internet was such a thing. And so you also didn't, I didn't have that much to compare other people to. And it was sort of just like, I don't know, I really want to move to New York. And if I need to get a job to move to New York, I guess I'll just keep doing it. Amazing skill set, by the way, to be able to interview, line them up, knock them down, cover letter, respond, reply, ba 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 ba, and just do it over and over again. And none of those things are, are how or why I got my first job. So for anyone who's out career searching right now, at least you weren't doing it in 2001. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it was daunting and, and very challenging. I want to spend most of the conversation talking about your coaching practice, but I, I think it provides really useful color to understand that you had 20 years as you didn't start as an executive, obviously, but oh, no. you, you grew to executive level and, and you were doing really big things at, at fancy companies and brand name companies. And I would love to know just a couple of the highlights in the 20 year career. What were, what were some of the twists and turns? Where did you start and, and things of that oh, nature right. before I mean, you coaching? Do we have three hours? Okay. So <laughs> to actually dovetails beautifully into what I was just saying. So I get my first job, which was, I was babysitting for a family out here in Connecticut while I was looking for a job. And this woman, I was like the most overqualified babysitter, right? I, you know, I just graduated with high honors from a top university and I'm babysitting her kid. And, and at one point I think she realized, she's like, yeah, so, uh, my best friend is the publisher of Harper's Bazaar magazine. Would that be of interest to you? Like, yeah, of course it would. So at the end of the day, it was a relationship that got me my first job. I obviously come from a, a retail and fashion background. It's something that's of interest to me naturally. So it's now looking back on it, it was a very logical sort of like not directly in fashion and in retail, but in that world in a creative way. And it happened to be a job on the business side of publishing versus the editorial side, which writes the articles and does, you know, the photo shoots. The business side is generating the revenue so that they can go places to shoot the fabulous things and hire great models and fabulous photographers. So I was a marketing assistant at Harper's Bazaar magazine, and I was there for a couple of years and then quickly uh, moved over to Vogue. So my second job ever in life was at Vogue magazine mm -hmm. in the height of sex in the city, living in Manhattan as a, you know, a young 20 year old, 20, at that point, I'm like 24, 25, getting car services, staying in the most fabulous hotels, um, at that point you would just show your business card at like a nightclub in New York and it would say Vogue on it. And they would just be like, come on in <laughs> every hotel I booked. Uh, they would just upgrade me to the best room because I worked at Vogue and, um, it was very sexy and it was debilitatingly hard work for such little pay that I don't even know that I can say it out loud because I, I, I think interns get paid more than what I got paid. Mm -hmm. And I stayed at Condé Nast for almost 15 years. So Condé Nast owns, um, so I worked at Vogue. I worked at GQ, Gentleman's Quarterly. I worked at a magazine that is no longer, but was my favorite. It's called Lucky Magazine. And the last place I worked there was at Glamour. They also own Vanity Fair, New Yorker, a very prestigious place to work. And one of the things I learned at Vogue was, with all due respect, Vogue, I love you guys, but I think we could all agree on this, that the energy there was not, we're lucky to have you. It was, you're lucky to be here. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a problem with your boss or with compensation or with your working hours, you can just go. 
because every woman your age would die to have your job. Mm-hmm. And I think piggybacking on the way I was raised, I, it just made me feel like, keep your head down, work hard, don't say a word, you're so lucky. And there were parts of it that were fabulous. I mean, I, I traveled, I saw, I ate, I dined, I met, like all the things you could ever imagine. But it was uh, not a environment of appreciation or uh, recognition. Mm-hmm. I mean, we would get like a Gucci bag for Christmas. And I remember getting, or for the holidays, I remember getting La Mer eye cream, which is like, I don't know, two, $300 for a little pot of cream. I was 25. Like I didn't need eye cream, but these were the things that, that were around me. I got discounts at every um, fashion designer. And I actually did events. I did marketing. So I did events for these, for these different advertising partners. And so I got free clothes all the time, but I made three pennies and I worked seven days a week. So everyone always wants to hear about Vogue specifically, and they want to hear about Anna Wintour and all that. And all I can, the best thing I can say is that I worked at Vogue when the Devil Wears product came out. So that's and it that. sounds like, it sounds like it was at least a somewhat accurate depiction of what it was like to be there. That it was high stress, high demand. You're lucky to be here. So put your head down and, and stop. And look pretty look and pretty. dress nicely and be very skinny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was a hotbed of, of pressure for me, which is exactly what I thought was life. Like I thought that was working and I thought that was life. So side note, cause we haven't gotten into it. So I have a chronic autoimmune disease guys. I have, it's called ulcerative colitis. My body thinks that my intestines are a foreign object and they're constantly attacking. I was diagnosed at 16. Now there's a lot of theories because there's no known cause and there's no known cure. But one of the theories is, so they're all theories. No one knows why I have it and someone else doesn't, but people love to say, oh, well, all that stress and all that pressure caused your ulcerative colitis, or is it the other way around? Is having a constant digestive issue that's very stressful, very intimidating, very embarrassing, does that cause your anxiety? But I think certainly the way I was raised and the pressure I put on myself in college and then, you know, right out of work, it was this other, like just so much pressure all the time, everywhere, everything. And so when I was 35, I left Condé Nast, talking about highlights. At that point, I was the senior director of integrated marketing for Glamour Magazine. And I left and I didn't know what the heck I was going to do with the rest of my life and my career. And had I known what I do for a living now, I would have hired myself because I kind of knew what I liked I knew what I was good at, but I didn't understand how to translate that into a career that also felt fulfilling. Um, LinkedIn existed at that point and a a recruiter from eBay found me and hired me as a consultant to do business development. So total career change, totally different skill set. Apparently I was good at sales. I didn't know that. So some of the highlights of eBay was eBay. I created a a whole new revenue stream for them that I rolled out in Europe. So I got to spend some time in England and in Germany training other people. I 
got to be on the other side instead of being the magazine person who's like, please give us your advertising dollars. I was now the person that they wanted. And so I got to experience my old industry in a different way. My boss lived in California. This was before the days of Zoom. My team was based out of San Jose. I was based in New York. And so I learned a lot about management style that way as well. And it was exciting. And I was a consultant and that felt very weird and awkward and part of the team, but not part of the team. So after four years there, the the consultant gig, it was just kind of like it had run its course. So there I was again being like, what do I do now? How do I translate these skills? Who? Okay. So I worked in magazine publishing. Now I've been a consultant at eBay. Like, what are we doing? Then I worked for a startup, a dot-com startup in the um, marketing uh, ad tech space. Okay. There's nothing about magazines that translates into the ad tech space. Plus I became the director of partnerships there where I ran a sales team of 20 people in three different countries. Wow. So highlights there, it's an Israeli company. I got to uh, really understand different cultures and I got to travel back and forth to Israel, which was amazing. I got to learn what I'm not good at. And that's tough in your forties. I'm amazing manager and leader of people. I am terrible at widgets on a page. <laughs> terrible. Uh-huh. And that brings us to now. Yes. So I did three pretty significant career transitions and there were great parts of it. And I learned a lot about myself. I learned not only good things about myself. I also learned some of my major pitfalls. I've met the most amazing people. I have 3000 contacts on LinkedIn. Like I've got a world of people that I have met and, and really enjoyed and learned from. I also don't have a linear career at all. It's sort of bounced around a little bit. So yes, there were highlights. I made some money. I traveled some places. I met some famous people. I, um, I made a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of translatable skills from your career and even your education that bring you into coaching human and organizational development. I mean, that is Amazing. a principle, a staple of coaching. So there's, you had your foundation there. You traveled and got to know a lot about different cultures. And I also lived in Spain when I was 12 with my family and in Italy when I was 21. So I've also been able to experience and enjoy different cultures from an early age, which I think was helpful. Mm. Sorry, none of this has anything to do with what Mike and I were going to be talking about. So go on. Sorry. (laughs) That's no, it's it's useful color. So it, it shows that you I make up the story that a lot of people who grew up in a New York City suburb live in a very sheltered life and think that, you know, one of the possible outcomes of your upbringing would be that you think your worldview is the only view and that everyone aspires to that. And to have the different cultural experiences helped you realize probably that there's different ways of doing things. And I see things and the world one way and people in Europe see it another way and so on and so forth. So I hate to, to stop us because we're not even really where we want to go yet. But, but to your point, yes, I grew up, I, well, I was born in St. Louis. Then we moved to Hartford, Connecticut. Then we moved to Boston. Then we moved to Greenwich, Connecticut. Then we moved to Spain when I was 12. But for the most part, it was the same town, different, you know, same idea, same wealthy suburb outside of a big city, homogeneous in all ways. 
And when we moved to Spain, I was 12. So that's seventh grade. And if you don't remember, seventh grade is a really pivotal year in terms of personal development. And uh, I went to, so we moved to Madrid, my sister and I, she was a sophomore in high school. I was in seventh grade. That's not right, but it sounds right. So just go with it. So um, we went to an, uh, to an international school owned by an Iraqi family during the Gulf War. Wow. My sister and I were the only Americans at the school. And we were ugly Americans. We only spoke English. We didn't speak Spanish. Most of these were um, generally at an international school. It's generally like oil and shipping and banking families that move very often. So they speak English. They speak the language of the country they live in. They speak whatever language they speak at home. And they usually speak another language too. So I very quickly understood what it felt like to be an outsider. Mm. No one loved that I was an American. I also lived in the city of Madrid, but I went to school in the suburb of Madrid. So I commuted 45 minutes away. So I didn't like really have friends. I didn't have like sleepovers with my friends because I was in the city and they were, in, it was just, it was a very, I, and then I went back after a year, we were supposed to stay for five years. We went back after a year and I went back to the same all girls school that I'd gone before, but I was a totally different person. Uh -huh. And I had so much more awareness of what it really feels like to be an outsider. Then not, not long thereafter, I was diagnosed with this chronic autoimmune disease where I did also feel like an outsider. And so that even this girl that on the out, you know, you look at me and it's like, oh, she grew up in Connecticut. She went to Vanderbilt. She works at Vogue. There was all this other stuff going on that no one else would know about. Mm -hmm. So this is a kind of a, a two-part question from here, because it sounds like it, at various points in your life, it would have been very helpful to seek support, whether it was from a therapist or a coach or some sort of mentor. So was that prevalent at any point in your life before you got to your coaching practice? And then as you transitioned out of more traditional, I know your, your career path wasn't linear, but for the most part, it sounds like you were being employed by organizations and you weren't creating your own business. So was there support around you that helped you get your business started? Did you hire a coach? Was there anything along the lines there? Yeah. Okay. So therapy, absolutely not. The second I got to college, I was like, hi, uh, student health center. Do you have therapy? I knew that the way I grew up and the things that happened in my home and, you know, stuff that I haven't spoken about here, because we don't need to was not normal. And so I almost immediately got myself, and that's just kind of who I am. I'm a very open book. I want to share. I want to learn. I want to understand. Um, so yeah. And then after college, I was diagnosed with ADHD, which is maybe surprising in the sense that I did so well academically, but I was. So then I started having like a like a like a talk therapist. Um, that's something that I have always really believed in. It also is very different than coaching because in my opinion, therapy is about, you know, what is holding you back from being able to be fully present in your life today? And I look at coaching, at least the way I do it as what, so to me, therapy is about what are you running from? And to me, coaching is about what are you running towards? Mm -hmm. So it's much more future focused. What do we need to address from your past in order to allow you to live your best life moving forward? Um, so no, and no one ever offered any kind of, things were very different then, you know, the people didn't work was different. Things were different. School was different. I went to university while I had a chronic autoimmune disease that had me in and out of the hospital. It never dawned on me to let Vanderbilt know that I might need some special mm. anything. 
I just figured it out. And I'm not applauding myself for that. That's just not how things were then. And um, at one point I was given a medication to help with my digestive tract that um, made my eyes really wonky. And only looking back, am I like, why didn't I have someone take notes for me in class? I like couldn't read the board, but anyways, this is just sort of my personality. Like, all right, keep it moving. Let's keep going. So no, I did not. And then I had a coach ironically. So let's just fast forward through all this madness. Yes. So guys, I, I have all this, I have all these things happen with work at 35 years old. I quit drinking alcohol and that started to help me to see how much anxiety I was living with in my life and how much pressure I'd put on myself. And I was drinking not in like a crazy, like I didn't go to rehab. It was nothing like that. It was just like, I got married when I was 31. I was divorced by the time I was 30. I got married at 30. I was divorced at 33. Work pressure was mounting. Health stuff was getting worse. And drinking seemed like a really good idea to me to sort of help quell all of the, this anxiety of this, like you were raised to be, to achieve in a certain way. Now you're a single woman in your thirties and you don't make as much money. Like now you got to make your career be great, but also keep being healthy, but, you know, look good and be thin and, and dress well and be at the right places with the right people. And so I drank, mm-hmm. right. And, and I drank to feel better. And, and by the time I was 35, when I left Condé Nast and I went over to eBay, I quit drinking. Um, and I'm a member of a 12 step program. It's been revolutionary in my life. I've been uh, sober for seven and a half years, but that began to help me see like, mm, Maybe I don't need to just like get rid of that job and get the next big job and everything, just the mounting, the mounting, the mounting. And so I, I hired a coach, a career coach to help me when I left Condé Nast and went to eBay to help me figure out what the heck I should do for a living. What I found to be missing in the coaches that I worked with, and they were great at what they did, was I couldn't find anybody that was helping me to take all aspects of my life, my health my passion, my advocacy work with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, the things I'd learned about myself in sobriety, who I really am, and a career. So career coaches to me were like, cool, let's look at LinkedIn. Let's look at your resume. Why don't you take a, an assessment and figure out what your main skill set is? And then it was like, also, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you spend all your free time trying to help other people either in recovery in with drugs and alcohol or with being diagnosed with a chronic autoimmune disease. But that's, you know, that's what you do on the weekends and for fun. Mm-hmm. And what I really felt was missing was somebody who was taking a holistic approach and look at who I was as a full person. Mm-hmm. And so I got that job at eBay. I put the career coaching thing to the side. And then I, when I left eBay, I kind of picked up the career coaching thing again, got another job and was like, cool. Now I do ad tech. And when that fell apart, which there's no reason why it shouldn't have, I realized I need somebody who's looking at more than just my career, is looking at who I am as a person and what my overall passions and purposes are. And I couldn't find that person. So fast forward to the end of the story, I created it for myself and now I do it for a living. Wow. So there wasn't, yeah, that, excuse me. It's surprising to hear that there wasn't a, a person that helped you arrive at this that you had to I, by trial and error you you arrived at it on your own and you created the thing the very thing that you needed most in your life which is on one hand a little bit surprising on another hand it's it's something that it seems like you're doing with 
uh, ulcerative colitis and you were making contributions there and you were contributing to other people who are in recovery. And so on, on one hand, it's surprising that you figured it out on your own. And another, it's, hey, what if I'm not getting what I need, how can I create it and help others in that way? So Mike, I think that's me in an, it's two things. One, you mentioned earlier, like, oh, it makes perfect sense that you majored in human and organizational development with the focus on leadership and entrepreneurship, because now that's what you do for a living. Mm-hmm. For the last 21 years, I was like, why in the world did I major in human and organizational development with the focus on leadership and entrepreneurship? I work in big corporations. I work in sales or marketing. Like none of the, That's what I desperately wish someone else had stopped me and said, like, let's put a connective thread together. What do you do for fun? Why do you enjoy it? What is your experience? But also, what are your skills? And let's weave that into one story instead of like, this is who you are on the weekends. And this is what your resume says about you. And that's what I felt was really missing. So I spent a lot of time being like, is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? And now it all makes sense. But it didn't make sense at the time. It felt like all these disparate experiences, like, oh, I've traveled abroad. Oh, I've I've helped other people in recovery. Oh, I have an illness. Oh, I studied, you know, I I worked in these big companies. I didn't understand the thread that was like, it was like putting all the input into the computer and the computer's like, you should be a coach. Like that. And then, but then when it came to me, it just was like a lightning bolt. And I will say, to be very fair, I had an amazing coach at the time who I said to her, I can't stay working at this ad tech startup situation. I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at the numbers. Like I'll own it. And I said, I just wish, but I'm great at managing people. I'm great at motivating people. I'm great leading a team. I just wish there was a job where you could just motivate and inspire and lead people to their own greatness. And she was like, "Uh, yeah, it's called coaching. And Then I got, you know, I took nine months and got a proper coaching certification and it wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be like. It's much more work. Um, And then I became a coach, but then the truth is I then hired a business coach because I have no idea. I worked in corporate America for 21 years. What do I know about accounting and, you know, lead generation and sale, all that stuff. So then I had a coach, but again, it went back to like a coach for a specific skill set versus a holistic approach of life. So I'd love to get into that with you, the holistic approach about life and the work that you do with your clients. And I'll start with, I know that one of the pillars of your coaching, you, you have a pyramid and it starts with awareness, then action, then confidence and choice. And I think that's a good, that's his homework. Yes. I do a little bit of homework and I, I think that's a good place to start. And I would love to hear from, from there, we can go into more specifics about your coaching, but why is that pyramid so important to you and, and to your clients? So in my humble opinion, from 21 years of climbing the corporate ladder and never really feeling fulfilled and having it all on paper, but actually feeling kind of stuck and meh and not sure why, Here's what I've discovered. We're doing it all wrong. We are all so busy doing. And my whole theory is your to-do list becomes your five-year plan if you're not paying attention. Oh, I'll get to that later. I I would love to, to, you know, oh, I'd love to 
align my passion and purpose, but I'm too busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. And I'm not at all saying we aren't all very, very busy, but busy doing what? Keeping ourselves stuck or moving towards our passion and our purpose and aligning our values with our actions. So the bottom of the pyramid of the Babcock method, which yes, is a trademark thing. Cause like I said, I couldn't find it. So I made it is awareness. We are humans doing, we're not humans being right. So the first thing we all need to do is we need to stop. We need to stop taking so much action and take a big step back to awareness. Who am I? What do I want? What are my capabilities and strengths? What lights me up? What stresses me out? What are my values? What's actually important to me? And only once you really understand who you are, also what's holding me back? Mm -hmm. What are my fears? What of these things, like for me, it was this checklist of you've got to be married by this age. You have to have this job, making this money, living in this place. And I never questioned any of that stuff. So I was so busy doing all the things to keep it going. And it was like, do you even want this stuff? Oh, this is the stuff I'm supposed to want. But do you want it? Oh, I don't know. I never, I never slowed down enough to think about it. So what I do with my clients is we start with awareness. Everyone needs to have a baseline understanding of who they are, what they want, what their life's about, how they define happiness, because it's different for everybody. Then you can move up the pyramid to action because you're taking aware action. You're no longer just doing what you're supposed to do and the way you're supposed to do it, but you're actually consciously aware of the choices that you're making in your life. So that the action that you take is much more purposeful and valuable. And you do have a plan and you have a vision and most people don't have a five-year plan and that's totally fine. Except for when you don't know what you want, you're never going to get there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my clients also say, I need to make more money or I need to raise, I need a promotion. And I say, cool. Do you have a five-year budget? No. So what is it that you need more money for? What are you going to be spending it on? I don't know. You know, so I have clients that say to me, I want to make a million dollars. How do you want? How is making a million dollars going to make you feel? Let's get really aware about that. Because otherwise you're going to make a million and go, "Mm, that wasn't it. Maybe it's 2 million. So let's stop. Let's get really aware. Then take action. From action, you move up the pyramid to confidence. And what I mean when I say that is something that I talk to my clients a lot about is a mastery mindset. And a mastery mindset is not I win or I lose. It's I win or I learn. And my career is a pretty good example of that. You know, taking the best of what I I garnered from each experience and moving it into the next one, as opposed to just saying, well, I'm not a magazine publishing anymore. So let me chuck all 15 years of experience with what I did there. So a mastery mindset is I win or I learn. So once you are aware of your action and you're taking aware action, you are the the action that you take, you build more confidence in because you do something and it either gets you what you want cool, keep doing more of that. Or you tweak as a result of what didn't work and keep doing more of that. So you naturally get more wins and those wins generate more confidence to keep doing more of the same thing. It's much like exercising. At first you do it, you don't really know what you're doing, but then once you do it and you start to see the gains, you're going to do more of what actually worked. The things you were doing when you were working out that weren't working, 
you don't do them anymore, but you don't look at it as a total loss. You look at it as, oh, okay, I learned what I don't need to be doing, go in the other direction, which ultimately brings you to the top of the pyramid, which is choice, co-creating your own life because you're aware and you're taking aware action, you're building more confidence as a result of the action that you take, you get to a place where you choose your life. It doesn't happen to you. You're not a victim. You're not stuck. You're not lost. You are consciously aware and you make your life choices based on who you are, what you want, what works for you and what doesn't. It's just that easy. <laughs> it's, I mean, to me, it seems like you could spend however long you're working with folks, you could spend the bulk of the time on all of that, even just awareness. If, if someone works with a coach and all they took out of it was awareness, like that seems incredibly fruitful for me. Is there, is there anything more to it? Like I, I know there's a lot more nuance to it than the, the four pillars that we named there, but are you basically helping folks get really clear on their awareness, their come from, then what action they want to take, why that's important to them, yep. Bu building the confidence through taking the action and building the competencies and then realizing they have agency? Like it, it's most, it seems like you just run the reps through that over and over again, right? So yes, you're absolutely right. The bulk of the time is spent on awareness. And so I have a lot of clients that come to me and they do sort of the foundational program and we spend so much time on awareness that we sort of graduate out and they stay with me because then we got to get into the tactics. Then we're doing more of the actual action and that kind of stuff. But I really hold my client's feet and they get mad at me at the time because I'm here's where traditional coaching failed me. It was so action-based. You want a new job? Fix your LinkedIn. And no one was saying, why do you want a new job? What is it that you want to get out of that that's going to make things better or different? And it's uncomfortable because we are humans doing. We're so busy taking action. So a huge amount of the time is spent, who are you? What are your values? What matters to you? Are you sure that making money is going to make you happy? Are you sure that the new job is going to be the solution? Really getting into the, the stuff that we don't ever look at. Mm -hmm. And I have one client that said to me, it's been more transformative than therapy. And in a sense, it's true because what I was missing in therapy was I was digging up all this stuff about what was going on at the dining room table we were talking about earlier, but I didn't know what to do with it. Right. And then coaching traditionally was more like, here's what to do. And, and what I needed was a bridge. Here's what happened. Here's how that has affected me. And here's my choice of how I want to take action moving forward. So bulk of the time is spent on awareness. Mm -hmm. And I use a really amazing assessment tool that helps, um, takes my clients like 15 minutes to take it, takes me a couple of days to sort of like blood work, like uh -huh. the blood works, just the blood work, then you've got to filter it and figure it all out. And that becomes really the baseline of, of the, our work together. It takes about an hour and a half. My first session with my clients is an hour and a half session. We go through the debrief of that. And I have clients that right at that moment are like, you've changed my life. Mm -hmm because of the amount of awareness they now have about what's actually important to them and where things have been tripping them up and why in a way that's very measurable and tangible. So that it's the way I work with my clients isn't like we work on awareness and then, and then you go take out like every session we're digging up something and we're taking an action item on it because that's the way my brain works. I need to have something I'm going to do about it. Or it's just like, cool. I know that I like cats who cares mm -hmm. I actually. Don't. I like dogs, but anyways, 
So, yeah. So we, you know, some people, we spend so much time on the awareness and then they're ready to go. They get how to take action on this now that they know who they really are. Other clients, it becomes more of a, a an ongoing experience. But what I do promise everybody is within three months, you're going to know who you are, know what your values are, know what you're passionate about and understand how to align that with your life, mm-hmm. which that's cool. Yes. I think <laughs> it's, it's very cool in my experience. That's why I do what I do as well. Exactly. So one of the things that is inevitable to come up that you have already named in this conversation around, it could be around awareness or action. So there's the, the question of, I don't know if you explicitly said it this way, but one of the most popular and foundational coaching questions is why is that important to you? Whatever the thing is that you're naming, what's important to you about that? Why do you want the promotion? Why do you want more money? Yep. And it is, of, of course, very surprising to realize that we don't know why we're doing a lot of the things we do. But that's not really what I wanted to get at in the question. Let's just say we've arrived or your client has arrived at why something is important to them. And they're, they're crystal clear on that. The next big question is, well, what's, what's getting in the way of that? Yep. Are there some typical tripwires that the clients, the folks that you're working with have that get in the way for them? And how do you work with that? Great question. And very sadly, a very, very, very simple answer. So there's something called inner blocks and outer blocks, right? Outer blocks are, I want to be a doctor, but I don't have a high school degree. I wish I had clients like that, right? Because it's so simple in the sense that you're like, cool, first, let's get your GED. Then let's apply to colleges where you're going to have, you know, that's not what I deal with. I'm sure it's not what you deal with. I deal with imposter syndrome. I deal with um, debilitating fear. I deal with external pressures, but it all comes down to one thing. If we really get very simple and it's self-confidence. It's the one thing Mm -hmm. because these are inner blocks. Mm -hmm. So a hundred times out of a hundred, And each client, of course, thinks they're different. And I think I'm different and I'm special. But at the end of the day, everyone's got their own secret sauce and formula of it. But at the end of the day, we all have a gremlin in our head that tells us that we're not good enough. And it might be, I'm not smart enough. I'm not cool enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not this, but we all have that. And that is a huge part of the work that I do in terms of awareness is identifying what that I'm not blank enough is and turning the lights on on it and being like, okay, so maybe you're not smart enough. If you stop spending all this energy trying to hide that away, where would you be spending that energy instead? Mm. And really sort of being aware of it and and then reassigning that energy in a more positive way. Mm -hmm. It's a little more complicated than that, but. Yeah. And I want to, this, I think, is probably the most important thing we can do as coaches is to normalize that, right? It's to, a lot of times we think that we're uniquely flawed and yeah. that the, my, my flavor of not enough is, is different. I know other people experience it intellectually, but I know that my, I, I think that my flavor of it is worse than anyone else's. And that's yeah. where the imposter syndrome and the whatever. So I, I want to bring something maybe tangible for me into the conversation. And so we have, so that folks that are tuning in can get a taste of how would you actually work with this in practice mm-hmm. and, and not just a, a theoretically, just two coaches having a conversation. Right, right. So for me, 
it's not something that I struggle with as much anymore. But one of the my flavors of not enough would be something around interesting enough. Mm-hmm. So like I. So isn't it ironic that you have a podcast? <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. And, and it's not, like I said, it's not as much a, a challenge for me anymore, but I very much had a lot of uh, difficulty being seen by other people. I, I spent a lot of my life hiding in plain sight and chameleon was a word that came up for me. So a, a lot of my journey and my inner work has been around why do I want to be seen? But there's, there's this competing desire, seemingly competing. One part of me wants to be seen, one part of me wants to be invisible. So why is it important to me to be seen? Why does this work matter to me so much? And then once I was clear on why coaching mattered to me so much, and there's so many reasons for it, but for me, it's, I want people to feel seen and to Mm -hmm. have the ability to heal. And I have this deep belief that if love and compassion is extended to people, then it can be really transformative. And It allows people to flourish and to, and to grow. And I'm really passionate about that in part because of my whole life feeling invisible and and hiding. And so what what I want, of course, of course. So the, the thing that I wanted to get to with you would be like, if I rewind maybe three to five years and I'm showing up to you, like, this actually did happen in some ways. I, I showed up to a coach. I want I wanted to find something that I'm passionate about that's meaningful for me. And the thought of having like holding space with even five of my friends just sharing what I'm up to was like so overbearing for me. So like, where would you, I get the sense that this isn't really the type of client that you work with necessarily, but- Not true. Okay. So where, where would you start with someone like that? Like how would you help them uh, open themselves up to- making eye contact with that limiting belief and then Mm -hmm. empowered action from there? Well, the truth is, is that I, this is why I'm not a one hit wonder coach. Like if somebody came to me with that, it wouldn't be like, we're going to have one session and figure it out. Right. So the first thing is, and you already nailed so much of this yourself, but my first question would be, why is connecting with people important to you? And to your point, really understanding, is this something you think you're supposed to do? Oh, well, good people talk to other, like if you stay at home and play video games on your own, you're bad. Like, where is this coming from? And to your point, if we identify that this is truly what you want and it's not an outside sort of uh, pressure that's been placed on you or an assumption that you've made about how it's supposed to be or how life is supposed to be. And this is really who you are. And through that assessment, let's say I discovered that you're really driven by and very passionate about helping others. Right. So now we've identified this is a desire that you have. You want to build community and you want to help others, but your fear is holding you back. Mm -hmm. So there's a quote that I love by Marianne Williamson, and I'm going to watch it and it's very long. So I won't say the whole thing, but it's basically net net. It's who are you to play small? Mm -hmm. You were put on this planet earth for a reason. And if I see through the assessment and the work that we've done together, the reason why you're put on this planet earth is to serve and help others. Then first of all, that's a deep motivation for you outside of your own to kind of get over it. Right. And then what we would do together is I would ask you in a very kind and loving 
long way that we can't do right now. When did this first happen? When was the first time you felt that feeling of generally something has happened in somebody's life and it starts early on. And we want to know what that is. Again, I'm not a therapist, but what I want to know is what happened when, and what was the decision that you made about yourself when that happened? So, so for example, give me one. You're young. Something happened where you felt invisible and you were hiding in plain sight. Maybe you weren't like that before. Can you remember the first time you remember feeling that, that, that feeling of I'm hiding in plain sight or I'm invisible or I should be invisible? Yeah, there's one memory that comes to mind immediately, which I've done a lot of work on already was I was, I think I was in sixth grade and I was, go ahead. (laughs) I, I was reading in front of, I believe it was my English class. And I miss, I said, chick, the word chic was mispronounced by me. Yep. And the most popular girl in my school, I think, and certainly in that class started laughing at me and and corrected me. And so like, that's a visceral, and I could feel it in my body too. It was like a, uh, what I would do if you were my client. And by the way, guys, don't try and do this on your own, Mm -hmm. please. Cause this is, this is stuff that shouldn't, you can't do it on your own because it talks to you in your own voice. But what I would have you do is I'd have you close your eyes and physically feel where on your body you felt when you felt that feeling and that there's a feeling wrapped up into that. And, and you would say, I felt ashamed mm-hmm. or embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And, and then I would say to you, you made a decision about yourself in that moment when you said chick instead of chic, what was the decision that you made about yourself? Something along the lines of, I would do anything to avoid that feeling and to not be in pain and it's, uh, being invisible was, was one of those strategies. I think what the decision you made was when I speak out, I get, a sh- I get yes. shunned and shamed. Yes. It's not safe to speak out yet. It's not safe to speak out. Exactly. So here's the challenge that happened one time in sixth grade with that one girl in that one school in that one environment. But our brain is a lovely thing. That's just trying to protect us. So it then creates a sort of like, I will not get embarrassed. I will not be publicly embarrassed again. And it doesn't isolate it just to that incident in sixth grade. So as you continue living your life, Mike, you pull in more and more and more and more and more and more times in which you say that could embarrass me. That might not work. I'm going to do that. And so something that happened in sixth grade becomes an ethos. It becomes how you present yourself with friends, in relationships, at work, with family. And usually there's one pocket where it doesn't exist and that's great. And we can use that as a model for how to show up elsewhere. But generally what I ask my clients to do in this closed eye exercise is I ask them to go back to that sixth grade self and picture yourself in that classroom, in the outfit that you're wearing. What's the sight? What's the smell? What's the feeling? What are you wearing? And give yourself advice as the mic you are today to that sixth grade self. Right. And then, and then once we have that advice, we will move forward and say, okay, you're now the 80 year old version of you. You are outspoken and you are seen amongst your peers and you are helping others to do the same thing. What is the advice you need to give yourself right now Mm. about who you are? And the beauty of that exercise is I don't tell you anything. Mm -hmm. We finish the exercise and you have told yourself and you have created the knowledge, the skills, the power, the next steps. All I've done is facilitated the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And that's incredibly powerful. And that's the type of coach that I want to be. I don't want to just tell somebody your ego got hurt and da, 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 da. But like, what are we going to do about it? I'm not going to tell you your 80 year old wise sage self is going to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. And then we can reassign that energy that's being used to keep you from getting embarrassed and put it into who you really are and what your values really are, which is helping others mm-hmm. and sharing and letting them share yeah. in an empowered way. Mm-hmm. Awareness, action, confidence, choice. Yeah. I, I certainly get the sense that that example and that, that clarity will be really helpful for the folks that are tuning in and something that I bring into a lot of my podcast conversations because it's just so transformational and and so healing is what you were saying reminds me of internal family systems. Mm -hmm. It seems like you're familiar with it and what internal family systems I'm oversimplifying and shorthanding a little bit here, but essentially what, what happened was that sixth grade version of me was a, a part of me that I wanted to tuck away and exile. And one of the strategies that I developed was to have a part of me that there were a couple of things. One, I kind of became a little bit more of a perfectionist. And so mm-hmm. I, I tried to develop the uh, ability to never make a mistake so that exactly. that couldn't happen. And I, in, in ways where I felt visible, I wanted to go back behind the scenes and become more invisible. So those are what we would call protector parts in, in internal yeah. family systems that were constructs that were developed so that I wouldn't have the exiled part, someone standing in the front of the room getting publicly embarrassed and and embarrassed and ashamed were two really good words to describe it. So internal family systems is a a resource and a therapeutic modality that is applicable to coaching, in my opinion, and uh, is something that I point people to all the time, because it's to, to your point, you are always your own greatest sage. Only you know what you really care about and what you want. And as a coach and and a facilitator, our job is to just guide that and and facilitate that healing, not to prescribe what we think you should do. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And it's really powerful when, when these sorts of ahas happen in the sense that when you give someone the gift of awareness, this thing that they've been so ashamed about becomes their gift. Mm-hmm. And I know for myself, so you guys obviously already know that I have a chronic autoimmune disease. When I was 38, I had my entire colon removed in an emergency surgery. And unfortunately that surgery was done incorrectly. So I had to have another surgery three weeks later. I ended up having five surgeries over two and a half years to completely rebuild my digestive tract. And my illness had been something I'd had since I was 16. And I wasn't ashamed about it, but like Ulcerative colitis means that you have debilitating stomach pains, digestive issues, and a lot of diarrhea, which is like, no one cares. No one wants to know about it. And then when I had those surgeries, I had an ostomy bag. So I had a bag on the outside of my body. I don't anymore, but I did for two and a half years. And no one wants to know anything about that. And um, when I shifted from shame and embarrassment to there's people that need to hear what I can share with them about this illness, everything changed. Mm-hmm. Because first of all, I was helping others and I was healing myself through that process. So to me, that's a huge part of any fear, especially when it has shame or embarrassment around it. Is it the opportunity and ability to see like, how can I make this a win-win? How can I take what's happened? I mean, this is, I think a big thing we haven't really gotten into today, but a big thing about me 
is that I've had a lot of really hard things happen. I had a childhood that wasn't great. I've had this chronic autoimmune disease. I was divorced by the time I was 31. Some of those jobs that we were talking about, I didn't leave willingly. <laughs> they were, they asked me to leave. And my opinion is life gets lifey, right? And if we're waiting for everything to be good before we, we decide to, to improve our lives or to make sense of our lives, we're going to be waiting forever. And so one of the gifts for me and my ability to sort of get back up, you know, between each surgery to go back to a hospital, it's one thing to have a surgery. It's something else to go back, to know what it feels like to recover in the hospital for nine days and be in debilitating pain and be like, cool, I'm going to go do that again up. Oh, and now I'm going to go do it again and again and again and again. I think what that takes is an opportunity to see how do I use this to help me in a way that helps others, because that's who I am. Cause I'm a kind of person who wants to help people. If that's not who somebody else is, Hey, that's cool. Let's figure out who you are. What drives you? What motivates you? Mm-hmm. What's your Marion Williamson? Like what's your reason not to play small? So I think that helps a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, to, I think it also helps my clients a lot to work with somebody who they pretty much, I can't, I have yet to find a client where I ask them to do something or encourage them to do something that I haven't done myself mm-hmm. professionally, personally, physically, mentally, spiritually relationship. So that I think yeah. is helpful. Very, very. So I have a, a couple of reflections on that. And then I want to move towards the, the back end of the interview. It's, it's been a, a really rich conversation already, Rebecca. And Thank you. so my, my reflections that I have there are one, if you're working with a coach, it's really important that like I'm talking to someone who's in maybe out there looking to hire a coach or is in the field looking for one, it's really important to hire someone who has done the work themselves or has been through whatever they are prescribing for you to go through. If you are hiring a coach who has not done that work or been through the ringer a little bit around the area that you want to be supported in, red flag, definitely red flag. Yep. And the, the second thing that I'm hearing in your story is this the marvelous human ability to make meaning of things that we certainly wouldn't choose to go through. Yes. But then once we do go through it, we can make powerful meaning of it. And it reminds me of the namesake of this podcast. It reminds me of Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, someone who went through the Holocaust and actually used that as an experience to show the power of the human spirit and not something that, you know, pinned us against uh, how evil humanity is, which is very, it's true, but he used that as an experience to catapult him more into his purpose and he made meaning out of it. And if someone could go through the freaking Holocaust and have that outlook, then we can do, we We know things we We do do them every day. Yeah. Yeah. It is a mindset though. There's some people like I always say, are you a victim or are you a victor? Like, because as, especially as a coach, I understand that people get lost and stuck and overwhelmed and you can choose to stay that way forever. If you don't want to stay that way forever, you may not know how to get out on your own to, so exactly what you were just saying, there's this great parable about the guy who falls in the, or the person who falls in a hole. Have you ever heard this? I don't think so. Go ahead. Sure. Okay. My ex-husband said it um, in his wedding speech to me. So he's an amazing man. I adore him. We just weren't 
supposed to be husband and wife. So the idea is, is that a person falls in a hole and they're stuck and they don't know what to do. And a, a religious figure walks by and the person says, please help me, help me, I'm stuck in the hole. And they say, okay, here's a prayer. And they throw it down in the hole and keep walking. A doctor comes by, help, my legs are broken. The doctor's like, I don't know, here's some medicine, keeps walking by. A friend walks by and he says, help, help. And the friend jumps in the hole, a coach. We'll use a coach as this term instead. And the person says, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Now we're both stuck in this hole. And the, and the coach says, yeah, but I've been in this hole before and I know how to get out. Hmm. And that is the premise also of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is in sharing our experience, our strength and our hope and the darkest, most shameful things that we can help somebody else go, oh, wow, you've been there too. You were in that hole and you got out. I can get out too. Mm -hmm. That is the type of coach that I am. Mm -hmm. I've been in the hole. I had the gnarly time getting out. You don't have to live like that, but you have to want to get out of the hole. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. Yeah. Well, if you're open to it, would you be willing to share? You've shared certainly at a very high level, and I, I really admire your vulnerability, the, the different pain points that you've had in your life and the different tough experiences. Are there any specific moments that come to mind where it was, I don't know, like the, the amount that you were drinking or uh, I don't know, there was a, there was a week that I worked seven days straight and I got drunk every single night or I showed up really drunk to a meeting. Like, mm. was there a moment that was the, the toughest for you to acknowledge? So my drinking story is not that exciting mm -hmm. and that's okay. Cause I think it's very important to people listening who had no idea we were going to be talking about sobriety to hear this too. Some people's story involves a DUI or going to rehab or getting arrested or waking up in a stranger's bed. That wasn't my experience. Mm -hmm. My experience was that life was happening and I was sitting on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. Pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. You drink two if you had a chronic autoimmune disease. You drink two if your marriage ended. You drink two if you'd lost a job. And they were all, and everyone was like, yeah, actually, you're probably right. I would drink too. And so there wasn't like this thing. And, and, and ultimately it got, the truth of the story is, is that my family was together at our farm in Vermont. It was Labor Day weekend and typical of my family, like the dining room, like they didn't have a plan. Like, it wasn't like they were like, you need to go to rehab or anything like that. They just got together last night. It was a Sunday night. Monday was Labor Day. And they said, you drink too much. And I said, you would too, if this and this and that and that happened. And they were like, see, you're being defensive. That shows you drink too much. And then if I was like, yeah, you're right. I think I probably drink too much. They were like, you're just agreeing with us because you want us to stop saying this to you. And I kind of, I remember thinking like, where does this, like, okay, cool. I drink too, like, what do you want? And my father slammed his hand down on the kitchen table. And he said, you, you were a million dollar investment and you were a bad investment. And he was right. And that was the moment that everything changed. I could be a victim to all these life circumstances that had happened to me, or I could get up and move forward. 
And I had always been motivated by external validation, especially from my father from a very early age. Luckily, that's not what has kept me sober. My relationship with myself and my relationship with my higher power is what kept me sober, but something got me there. And the idea that I was watching my life pass me by and that I was a loser with all that I had been given seemed selfish. And that's the moment that everything changed for me. Yeah. Well, and that was it. I, I really appreciate you sharing that because that, that paints a very, very clear picture. I, and I felt my, as you named the hand slamming and you were a million dollar investment and it wasn't worth it. I just, I could imagine what that would feel like to, to hear that from your father, really from anyone. It's very, it was very father. painful, but it was also what I needed. Yeah. You know, it was a wake up call that I needed, that this was why my one big, beautiful, precious life. So that happened when I was 35, just to mm. put things in perspective. Mm. And it has been 38 was when I had my surgeries. So it's been kind of a quick progression of like, oh, I'm not drinking anymore. So what am I doing with my life? Well, right now I'm going to try and stay alive for two and a half years. I'm going to have a whole bunch of surgeries. And once I finish the surgeries, I think I'm going to go change the rest of my entire life. And I'm going to stop chasing this corporate thing where I feel like I'm getting chewed up and spit out. And I'm going to actually take my experience of getting and staying sober and having all those surgeries where my experience has been able to help others. And I I'm going to do that for a living. And that brought us to today. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing all of that, Rebecca, and for sharing a lot about your coaching practice. I, I think that anyone who tunes in is going to get a lot out of this conversation. And I just have a, a few more questions that I have for you as we move towards the back end. And let me just also say thank you. And thank you for asking these kinds of questions so that I can answer them. And for those people that are listening that are like, I can't believe she's sharing all this stuff. I'll just say in my life, it wasn't when I was the debutante from Greenwich, Connecticut or the Vanderbilt graduate that has brought me joy. It is in, in being honest, vulnerable and sharing the truth that other people feel like they can too. Mm -hmm. So I hope that if you get nothing else from this, first of all, Mike is doing this it's such a gift to everybody who gets to listen. It's a gift to me as well. But also if you're listening, that thing that you don't want anyone to know about is probably your gift. So yeah. think about that. All right. Ready for questions. Yeah. Well, and then it, it reminds me, I just wanted to drop this quote in and then I'll, I'll go to questions, but there's a quote that your superpower is often located next to your deepest wound. And it mm. reminds me of that quote. So I just, I wanted to sprinkle that in there because it's so that true. So it's true. It really is. Wow. Yeah. So I know from doing my homework, as, as you pointed out, I, I do the homework. I know that journaling is a, an important practice for you. And I would love to know the specifics around your journaling practice. Is there, do you do it once a day or is it visualization and future oriented? Very specific. It's very Let's specific. Hear it. So anyone listening, if you want to, if you want just I don't know, get in touch with us and I'll send you, there's a, there's a sort of a formula that I use, but here's what it is. It happens first thing in the morning. You need to do it. Every, my clients have to do it every day for the first 30 days. They always end up continuing to do it, but it's done in a very specific way and it doesn't need to take more than 15 minutes. So the first thing you do is you write down your fears. What are you afraid of? So we know for you, it's being, getting embarrassed or being, you know, but whatever it might be. 
So the point is we want to do like an emotional colonic. We want to start with what you're afraid of so we can get it out and get it on paper. It doesn't mean you're going to manifest it. It means you're going to get it out. So it's not keeping you playing small. You do that five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour. I don't care how long you do it for, but you do that and you make sure you exhaust all them. From there, you write down three things you're grateful for every day. Obviously, successful, happy people, what do they all have in common? They journal, they meditate, and they have a gratitude list. But I also have you write down three things you're going to brag about because every day is an opportunity to do something to be proud of, which is different than what you're grateful for. So for a bonus, I invite my clients to do a gratitude text, right? So don't just write down in your journal what you're grateful for. If there's somebody or something that you're grateful for, let them know. Mm. Then part three, your goal. And the expression is, he who knows is why I can bear almost any how. So you need to remember, even on the hard days, every day when you get up, what is it that you really want out of your life? Or your to-do list becomes your five-year plan. What is your goal? From there, the fourth part is the visualization and an affirmation. So I don't know how much you know about this. Very short version is your brain. If you visualize something and you affirm it, and the affirmation is, I am so happy and grateful to be Present tense. So if you ever noticed in a dream, when you wake up, it feels very real because your brain can't really differentiate that well if you have a really clear visual of it, that it happened or it didn't happen. It's called cognitive dissonance. So when you make that movie in your mind, I'm so happy and grateful to be a coach helping so many people. I visualize what that looks like. I say the affirmation three times. And that cognitive dissonance means that my brain thinks it's already happened. So it actually, this is like not just a woo-woo thing. Like your brain actually goes like, oh, okay. So I'm a coach who helps a lot of people. That probably means I need to do a podcast with Mike. Mm -hmm. And it gets your brain going and taking the action. Mm -hmm. So the very last part of the journaling, part five, is one goal. So what is that one thing that you're going to do every day? And yes, this includes the weekends because your goals don't take the weekends off. (laughs) That by doing so will eliminate all the other things you need to do or make them easier. And it's not five things, because then if you only do four, you feel bad. You don't feel like you've done enough. One thing, and you do one thing every day. And people listening can't see there's a staircase behind me. You don't go from the bottom of the stairs to the top of the stairs in terms of a goal. It is incremental work done every day that builds confidence. So then the next day when you're in your journal, you can brag about the thing that you did. So that is the way that I recommend journaling because it is both deeply cathartic. It involves gratitude and awareness and it has action. Hmm. Yeah. I, so I've heard all of those things before. I, I really appreciate the the little added spice and flavor of bragging about something because it yeah. it makes it it makes your process a little outward facing. And then if you, if you speak it into existence, it's, it's, it gives you a reward. It's almost, it seems like a very rewarding experience to say like, Hey, look what I've done today. Yep. And, uh, and then it it keeps building. It's a a part of that staircase that you're climbing up. Right. And you get to see it. Yes. Sometimes gratitude can feel a little like I'm grateful for breath. I'm grateful for the trees, Mm -hmm. but something you can brag about self, you know, esteemable acts, build self-esteem. Yeah. So there's that. Are there other parts of your morning routine? I know that you do meditations on insight timer, which I do as well. Uh, what else do you find helpful in your morning routine or just daily practices that you'd recommend? 
So yes, I wake up, I meditate and I journal. Um, I never meditated. I thought it was for very patient people. I've now discovered that it's actually for us type A hustlers that are impatient. And it has been completely revolutionary in my life, especially when starting a company from nothing, leaving corporate America and health insurance and all those things, starting my own company. So yes, I meditate twice a day, first thing in the morning and then before dinner. I journal, I exercise every day. I also have a relationship with a higher power. So part of my meditation and journaling is it's prayer-based. That's for me, it's a totally individual thing, but I think the idea that I'm bigger than just my, there's something bigger than myself that has a plan for me, helps me to feel better <laughs> in those times where I'm like, wait, so why don't I have a colon? How, what? Like, okay, there's a plan for me. So I exercise every day. And sometimes that looks like running. Sometimes it looks like Peloton. Sometimes it looks like lifting weights. And, and I do take days off, but for me, I need the mental, like I need the physical energy. So I guys, if you can't tell, have a lot of energy and I don't even drink caffeine and I have an autoimmune disease. Like I should be asleep right now, but it's just the way that I was built. So I need to do that every day. And that's something I know that helps me. Some other people, they need to paint. They need to listen to music. So I do that. And I read, I don't watch TV in bed. My bedroom is a sanctuary. It's for reading and meditating and not for watching television. And that's kind of like the rest of that is, is sort of individualized for me. But I think that finding your thing in addition to the prayer or the meditation and the journaling, finding a way to sort of reward yourself during the day. And that's been especially important to me because I am sober. Mm -hmm. So I don't get, I don't get the drink at the end of the day. I don't want the drink at the end of the day, but I need something like that to give myself sort of, you know, a payoff. So those are my things. Mm -hmm. As far as reading goes, you have two, three, it doesn't have to be limited to that, but some books that come to mind that you'd recommend. Okay. So I don't read anything that's like a textbook or anything like that before bed because I'm actually using reading as a way to wind my brain down. So I don't want to be reading something that's like, do this next thing. Or so I do, I read a lot about coaching stuff and I read a lot about psychology and all those things, but I don't read that at night. Got it. I actually uh, listen to those generally on audiobook and I listen when, when I'm running mm -hmm. at night. I love biographies and true crime. Mm. So that's generally what I read is true stories about, which makes perfect sense, right? I'm so interested in human nature and human and organizational development. So I really love true stories and especially I'm a, I'm a true crime junkie. So that's what I read. But what would I recommend to other people? One book. And unfortunately it's a journaling book, but it will change your life. And it's called The Artist's Way mm. by Julia Cameron. And everyone needs to read it and do it at least once. I do, I do it I do twice a year. I, I go back and like really redo it, but I I'm journaling every day. So it sounds like you're familiar with it. Yes. Okay. Peeps look it up. The artist way you can get it on Amazon. I, I will reluctantly admit that I have the book I've done morning pages. I have not, I've taken myself on artist dates before Good. and I have not actually gone through the full 12 weeks. And it's just one of those things that's been buried for me that I want to do. And it's been recommended on the podcast several times as well. Well, I'll tell you this. It's in the daily repetition. It's the same way with the journaling I do. And with my clients, it's like, if I'm writing the same fears down every day, 
at some point I'm going to do something about it because I'm so sick of writing it down day after day after day. After day. <laughs> so there is something to be said for the repetition over time. Yes. Yes. Here, here. Well, the last question before I ask the very, very final question of the interview that I ask everyone. Sorry, I have to interrupt myself. Yeah. Another book everyone needs to read because it has my favorite quote of all time. It's called Wild. Don't see the movie, although I love the movie, but read the book. It's by Cheryl Strade. And she has, I'm going to butcher this, but I believe in it deeply. It's on my website if you want the real version of it. You don't have a right to the cards you believe you should have been dealt, but you have an obligation to play the hell out of the ones that you're holding. Mm. Yeah. Be a victim or be a victor. I mean, that's it. That is it. It perfectly illustrates and encapsulates that. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Your last it's, question. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, what what's something that people would be surprised to learn about you? I'm an introvert. Oh, my goodness. Uh, there, see, the, every single time that I meet someone that is that says they're an introvert that I wouldn't identify as an introvert, I'm surprised by it. And it's at this point, I, I don't know why I get so surprised, but that that was for you in particular, you have such an extroverted energy. It's so, and it's sort of like, I should also say I have imposter syndrome, uh-huh. right? I think what I've heard about myself is that I can be intimidating because I seem like I've got it all together and I've got it all figured out. And that's why I say I have imposter syndrome. Cause I think this idea of like, Hey guys, everyone listening, your boss also has imposter syndrome. Your role model has imposter syndrome. And I don't actually want to use the word imposter syndrome, but what I mean is that I have insecurities. I have fears. I have doubts just like everybody else. Um, in terms of being an introvert, what I mean by that, and this is something I'm still working on. I'm certainly a work in progress. I'm only 43. I've got a lot more room to go. I feel so such a desire to share and, and, and go through my experiences and help other people and hear them and help them and figure out for them that I get exhausted. Mm-hmm. So I am not great at small talk. Mm-hmm. I'm not great at just like hanging out. I'm really good at like, let's like this. I love the deep conversations, but I hate a cocktail party. And it's not because I don't drink. It's because I want to like dig in and they want to like, you know, bounce around, have a couple conversations, talk a little bit about politics or whatever, and then move on to the next thing. And I'm like, but why? Like, what is the, so that's a work in progress. And in the meantime, I need a lot of retreat time where I'm journaling and meditating and running and doing things for me. Well, we share that in common. I I don't know if it would be as surprising for me, but I I share your love for the deep conversations and Mm -hmm. the the challenging components of the cocktail party and the more shallow conversations. (laughs) So where would you invite folks to connect with you online? I know you have a website, Instagram, LinkedIn. There's so many ways, but I I would say probably the easiest way is my website. Although I've discovered through creating this company that I have a name that is like a um, tongue twister. So ready? Here's the website. It's www.rebecca, R-E-B-E-C-C-A, Babcock, B-A-B-C-O-C-K, coaching.com. So it's Rebecca Babcock Coaching. On Instagram, I am at rbc underscore coaching 
And I think that's enough. Like if you go on LinkedIn, you'll find me, Rebecca Babcock. I have, you'll see all that work experience we were talking about. Um, and I think those are probably the easiest ways. And the website has lots of ways you can get in touch with me from there, which by the way, if you don't want to coach and you just want to talk about chronic autoimmune diseases or being a warrior, not a worrier, like I, I'd love to chat. Mm -hmm. Love it. Well, the final question that I ask everyone that has the opportunity to be on this podcast, Rebecca, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And one of the foundational reasons I started this is I wanted to pick every guest brain and ask, what does a meaningful life mean to you? So what's a meaningful life to Rebecca? So I've had the great opportunity of almost dying, right? And literally having, I had a moment with all these surgeries where, where I went into shock, okay? So a little bit of a flatline moment. And that's when I realized that it wasn't the money and it wasn't the prestige. And for me, what I will be able to die being happy about and be okay with is that I've used my experiences to help and serve others. And that to me is for me, what life is about. As somebody who doesn't have children and thought that was going to be the purpose and meaning of life, when I had to accept that wasn't going to happen for me in a traditional sense, it is the idea that I'm using what I've been through to help and serve others that gives me deep joy. Well, That's thank it. you. Thank you for showing up today with that attitude of service, that, that commitment to helping other people. I really trust that all the different components of your story are going to touch different people in different ways. And it's one of the reasons I love having a podcast so much is that you shared so much that people can take from this. And it's, it's really been a, a pleasure to have you on as a guest. If it's Chris, been a pleasure to be here and speak with somebody as amazing as you. So thank, oh, thank you. you. I really appreciate that. And, and Chris, if you're listening, a, a little shout out to you for for introducing us and thank you, Chris, making this happen. And uh, to all the listeners, I hope that whenever you're listening, you have a great rest of your day, a great rest of your night, and that you find what matters to you and start living into that because that's at the end of the day, the most important thing. So take good care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's search for meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.